Welcome to episode 6 of Battle Rhythm. I'm Stephanie Von Lackey and Steve Sademan will be joining me in a moment. The episode is called The Interdisciplinarity of Insurgency. We'll first talk about what is new and noteworthy, but also comment on the return of students to campus. I have a special segment with a fitness and nutrition expert, Veronique Malou, to get the academic year off to a healthy start. Then we will have Tanya Irwin discussing taxing populations for insurgencies, followed by Neda Bakos, who will talk about her new book about her life in the CIA. Finally, we have Steve Spieve about General Mattis' book tour. Welcome to episode six of Battle Turn of the Students. Hey, Steve, did you come up with that title? Yes, because you know, for the first nine episodes of our podcast, I can make Star Wars references. And so, of course, Return of the Jedi, Return of the Students, we are now having to give back our campuses to those other people. We had all summer to enjoy walking around campus, eating food without lines, and now there's all these younger people running all over the place. This is definitely apparent when I look outside my window. This weekend, students moved in, and now it's frosh full throttle. Yeah, and we have construction nearby the campus, so they've decided to rearrange uh, traffic all over campus, and it is a nightmare. You probably missed a lot of the action, though, because you were in Washington, D.C. for the APSA conference. And by the way, APSA stands for the American Political Science Association. Yes, I was in D.C. for the uh, APSA. Unlike five years ago, there was no fire. There was a political scientist who actually did engage in arson five years ago when it was last in Washington, D.C. This one was not quite that exciting, um, but it was a good time. I got to see friends from grad school because I went to grad school in the United States. I have also was employed at a number of schools in the United States. So I got to see people from the various jobs. Uh, I always have a good time with my friends from Texas Tech. We all escaped at various different times, but we had a great time there together. And uh, I had presented my work on the project on legislatures and civil military relations. And my discussant was one of my co-authors. So he was kind enough to be brutal in private and spent most of his time talking about the other papers. The good news is the future of civil military relations is young and, and pretty female. There's a, we held a, a tweet up where we met at the bar at the Marriott, uh, where we had people who do stuff related to civilians and military relations and it was it was well tended and it was pretty young and and it was a good mixture of people in fact we had two babies there the future of civil military relations is very young well that's good to hear and these conferences can sometimes be a little bit daunting because it's thousands and thousands of people descending on a city and there's so much to see uh, do you keep track of your graduate students at these conferences and try to network with them and mentor them through the process well it's funny that you asked that cuz uh, one day i went from having coffee with my very first graduate student who has not only gotten tenure but chaired his own department i'll tell you how old i am and how long i've been doing this stuff to going to meet with my advisor we met at the phillips collection which is a pretty neat little museum in uh, near dupont circle and talked to him and so i've always referred to advising as a as an unbreakable vow uh, a lifetime contract and i really live that in that three-hour sequence I currently didn't have any Nipsia PhD students uh, at the conference. I did meet up with some of my former students, like a pal of yours, Jessica Trisco Darden, and I uh, chatted about her her books, her, her her latest ambitions. So that's a good thing about these conferences is a good is a good chance to to meet with former students because the advising never ends. And I also take great pleasure in seeing my former students and seeing how successful they are and. and giving them whatever advice they, they are looking for or just a little solace or just a good chance to hang out and uh, see how we're both doing. We definitely need to have Jessica Trisco-Darden on this podcast because she had two books in 2018, 2019, in a very short time frame. There's Insurgent Women and then Aiding and Abetting. So we'll have her on. Yeah, she has, uh, the Aiding and Abetting is based on her dissertation and it has basically a sack of grain a sack of rice, I should say, bleeding blood to show that uh, foreign aid has all kinds of consequences, including negative ones. 
which is something that Canadians need to think about because we tend to think that we want to give out aid and it doesn't have negative consequences. It's all good, but but she shows that uh, it can be used to empower uh, people who are uh, engaged in repressing their populace. Yeah, it was great to um, cover art, I have to say. Speaking of challenging, do you want to go to our questions from listeners? Sure. Okay, I've got one here for you that you can take the first stab at. President Trump has said that he intends to invite Russian President Vladimir Putin to next year's G7 summit, which will be held in the U.S., stating that it would be better to have Russia inside the tent than outside the tent. Is it better to have Russia in the tent? Steve? Oh, and someday, maybe. Uh, in the past, yes. Right now, I'm not so sure. Because Russia's foreign policy is all about but dividing the West. So why give him, why give Putin more help to actually have him at the meeting playing the various other G7 members off against each other. Uh, it's very hard to have a coherent discussion. Plus, if you want to call the G7 a, a club of democracies, Russia doesn't really belong anymore. We'll see if the United States belongs after 2020. And I, I just don't see it making sense for a productive meeting. On the other hand, this last meeting wasn't very productive, so maybe the loss isn't that great because while communiques are, are overrated, the fact that they chose not to even have one suggests that there was not a way for them to reach agreement on major issues. That's true. And it, and it would be interesting to see. So Russia was expelled from the G7 five years ago after Crimea. And it would be interesting to see if there are any noticeable differences between the substance of the communiques in the last five years versus when Russia was, was part of the deal. But I find it funny that Trump goes outside the tent to pose the question, so to speak. I mean, he, he wants to pose the question to draw attention from the media. And instead of really doing the lead work and preparing seriously for a discussion where he, I don't know, would present certain arguments or build the support of certain G7 countries to really pitch the case, uh, he goes this and it feels a little bit like a publicity stunt and it doesn't seem really intended for the G7 leaders themselves uh, who were present at that dinner. Homework is not something Trump has ever done. And it's not just a matter of process. It's a matter of, of figuring out what other folks want. Uh, one of the concepts that you're going to teach next winter and I'm going to teach this fall is be, is what does it mean to be strategic? And to be strategic means taking into account not only your preferences, your desires, but the adversaries or the other actors in the room and then figuring out the best way to get what you want given what they want. And let me just use my standard example for this if you don't mind. I used to have two dogs, a small one and a big one. And one day in my old house in Texas, a small dog came out of the bedroom and wagged his butt and said, dad, I need to go outside. And so we had a fence in the backyard. So I opened the door and then he stepped aside and the big dog came flying out of the bedroom and went outside. And the little dog went back into the bedroom. <laughs> I'm like, what's going on here? And so the big dog comes back inside. Uh, and then a few, five minutes later, the little dog does the same thing. Dad, I need to go outside. Open the door, big dog goes flying out, little dog goes back to the bedroom. This time I follow the little dog back to the bedroom. Now he's, he was part corgi, so he's got these short little legs and he's trying desperately to climb onto the bed because that's where the big dog left its treat. And so both dogs are being strategic. The one, the big dog was like, I want to have my treat. I don't want to eat too quickly. I'm going to put it someplace where the little dog can't get. I know what he wants. I'm going to follow up, figure out a strategy which denies him the treat. Little dog's like, I want to get that treat. How do I get rid of the big dog? Well, I know the big dog prefers to be outside uh, chewing on the treat. I know the, the person prefers for us not to be piddling in the house. So I'm going to get the person to get rid of the big dog so I can have time to climb up on the bed. This is an example of strategic behavior. They both had their preferences and the little dog was able to figure out ways to get match his preferences given the, my preferences and the big dog's preferences. Well, if dogs can be strategic, then hopefully President Trump can be too. Well, I think... Trump's learning curve is much shallower than my little dogs. I just, he doesn't think strategically. He thinks he can just impose his will on people. He just thinks it's about what he wants and he doesn't take into account what other people want. He just thinks he'll be able to cow them into giving in and it doesn't work that way. And we see that with a trade war with China. The Chinese aren't giving in. They're, they understand that Trump has an election next year. And so they're, gonna, they're not going to surrender anytime too soon. And Trump is much more vulnerable to the domestic costs of this trade war than the Chinese are. So I fully expect him to give in at some point. He'll declare victory, but it'll be a loss because the farmers of the United States will have lost markets, not just for the last couple of years, but maybe forever as the Chinese decide to buy their soybeans from other places and, and other things. So uh, I do think that Trump is not strategic. And so that's why he shows up at these meetings completely unprepared. It's not just that he's lazy. It thinks He thinks he can just get his way by insisting on it. It wasn't a completely successful summit for President Macron. 
He also had a little surprise for Trump by inviting the Iranian foreign minister, which was interesting to see unfold. Uh, but maybe we can say it was more successful for Macron than it was for Trudeau last year, because last year Trump left, withdrew his signature from the communique and tweeted about Trudeau being very dishonest and weak. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, if you lower the standards, then it's easier to pass the exam. And in this case, Macron, you know, was was smart about not having to communicate because he learned from the lesson of what happened with Trudeau. And so there's, there was no push for Trump to actually agree to anything. I mean, the, the key thing was that they had the meeting about climate change and there was this picture of six leaders around a table built for seven. I think that spoke loudly to the world. And I don't think he had a lot of fun at the meeting. I don't think he got much out of it. I don't think he was able to really demonstrate his superiority or push people to his point of view. I was surprised he didn't overreact to the appearance of the Iranian foreign minister, but I guess Macron was able to smooth it out or, or not surprise him with it. Well, he never really looks like he's having fun at these things, to be fair, and I'm referring here to President Trump, but one can only wonder what will happen on the next season of Trump's G7 summits. <laughs> Well, what's going to happen probably at a Trump resort. So the good news is he'll be making money off of it, even if he's not going to be happy to be there. Yeah. Well, he's probably not allowed to do that. But if we think think testy now, just wait. This will be in the middle of the presidential election. It'll be a big hoopla. He's going to do it. It doesn't matter if it's not allowed. He's been violating that particular set of rules ever since he became president. So it will almost certainly take place at the Trump, yeah, Doral Trump Playground Park Resort, whatever it's called. And so then that will be very awkward for everybody else because they'll be doing something that they can't do themselves, which is profit from these kinds of meetings. Okay, second question. Where does our music on the podcast come from? It comes from Tighten Up. It's a group based out of Kingston with Charlene and Joe Harding, who are currently posted in Brussels. Melissa gave us the link. Melissa gave us these people. They're friends of Melissa's. Melissa's our podcast producer. And so it's at www.hotsweetandjumpy.com slash the hyphen band. We'll put that in the show notes so people can find the band. I can't tell you how much I love the music for our podcast. Melissa found these folks and got the permission to use their music. And I can't tell you how much I, I like, the, like the music for our show. Well, we have to rely on our friends when we're just starting out. And this is exactly what I did this week, too. I have a little surprise for you, Steve, since I recorded a short special segment with my friend and fitness guru, Veronique Malou. Explain. Well, instead of explaining, we'll just play it. During episode five, we were joking around that for academics, we make resolutions in August and break them in Labor Day. We don't make resolutions in January. And so I thought to follow up on that discussion that I would invite a good friend of mine and fitness guru, Veronique Malou, to give us some tricks on how to stay healthy and active with a really busy battle rhythm. Hi, Vero, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. And I have a few questions for you because I'm looking at an upcoming schedule, teaching schedule, and I see that I'm going to be teaching a class from 11.30 to 2.30. And right away, I think I'm totally going to get hangry. (laughs) I would too. (laughs) (laughs) So with a busy battle rhythm, uh, can you give us a few health tips and fitness tips that we may keep throughout the year so that we keep our good habits. I think the things that are the most important is choosing things that you're going to be able to keep. Most people, the problem is that they try to change everything at the same time and that's why they can't keep it up. But if you choose a few things that you're able to keep, then you're going to be able to keep them for a long period of time and fit them in your schedule. So I think the first thing is water in the morning, then snacks that work for you. Uh, So maybe starting small, I have a small fridge or mini fridge in my office. What should I stock that with for healthy snacks? Well, for sure some water, you know, you always wanna be prepared. My go-to snack for sure is Greek yogurt because it's packed with protein, uh, no added sugar. And an easy snack to have is always nuts. Also, I would have some, a jar of peanut butter, almond butter or I know you like cashew butter so I would go with cashew (laughs) butter it's so easy to just have like one you know tablespoon and then off you go or even with dates because that's a quick sugar 
uh, and you get some fiber with some uh, peanut butter. It's really, I know it sounds weird, but it's actually really good. <laughs> Probably it doesn't look good in a picture. But no, sure it doesn't. Tasty. So I can't put it on uh, Instagram. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about your own battle rhythm. You wake up, I'm supposing, early in the morning. You have a cup of water. What does the rest of your day look like or schedule look like? So I always, yeah, like you said, start with water, then my coffee. Then I do my workout high intensity 12 minute workout so you can just do it on an empty stomach that's really important to me the next thing after is lunch lunch you know how people say like breakfast is the most important maybe it's true but for me lunch is the most important because that's when I get all my greens and I make sure to you know eat as many vegetables that I as I can because you never know for the rest of the day how it's gonna go with you know the kids for dinner or whatever and then sleep then going to bed at 10 waking up at 6 it's always the same time with the kids excellent and you mentioned the high intensity interval training that you do and I'm familiar with the videos that you post online. You have a YouTube channel called Fit Cafe, and I don't want to sound like a bad infomercial, but <laughs> can you really improve your fitness level with only 12 minutes? You can. I did. The thing is, at the end of the day, 12 minutes is better than nothing. So you can always increase, which I think is great. And if you have the 12 minutes plus a really good, healthy eating habits, sky's the limit <laughs> that's great that's very encouraging i just want to thank you for coming on battle rhythm well I thanks know, for having uh, me i know security and defense is outside of your world but i think that's something that we all have in common is this aspiration to just have healthier habits when it comes to both nutrition and fitness and thank you so much for your tips we will try to stick to them <laughs> and next time that you come on battle rhythm because i hope that you'll be back i want to discuss with you the nutritional value of military rations. I had the opportunity to uh, enjoy one recently and it had everything from chili to a coffee crisp. So hopefully you'll be back with us next time and we can discuss the contents of those military ration packs. I would love that. And I guess that that's a good point to end our podcast on. I will highlight that the peeve at the end of this episode is about Jim Mattis and his book tour, that he's going around selling his book that is about his time as a Marine, not his time as Secretary of Defense. But given that he's now on TV and in other places trying to sell his book, he's being asked about his experience as Secretary of Defense. And all I'll say to highlight the people coming up is, I will never call him General Mattis. I will always call him former Secretary of Defense Mattis because he has to wear his time in office like a coat covering up his military uniform. Mm, well put. Well, we'll see what people say at the end of the after they listen to Peeve, and hopefully they'll have some reactions and some questions for us. Tanya, welcome to Battle Rhythm. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So my name is. Tanya Irwin, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Toronto. I've uh, just wrapped up my first year, and um, broadly I'm, I'm investigating rebel governance and taxation. So the research is still in very early stages. Some of my background, I did my undergrad at, at Queen's University, so actually, um, Stephanie, that's where I first met you. Uh, I did my master's at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. I've, I've worked in between various consulting jobs, sometimes with the World Bank. Something interesting as well, I've, I've, I've been involved with Wise Canada, which is, as you mentioned, the reason that we're here since my undergrad. Let me first start by asking how you got interested in the topic. Maybe you can just give us a quick reminder of your, your title for your presentation and then how you got interested in this topic. Mm -hmm. So the title of the presentation is Understanding Rebel Group Outcomes, a Social Institutional Framework of Rebel Group Taxation. Um, so broadly, I am mostly interested in taxation, which is a difficult thing to convince people that it's interesting, but I'm going to try and do that. Um, I'm, I've always been interested in intersections of areas of study, and I think that if we're looking for any kind of truth in our research, it has to lie at the intersection. So um, since undergrad and into my master's um, especially, I've always kind of been located at the intersection of conflict and development. Um, and taxation is one of those things I find as crucial to conversations in, in both those areas. 
So especially when we're thinking about stories of, of state building, which I think is what interested me in, in taxation, sort of revenue mobilization, and, and how do states first get their legs on, on how they're going to you know, become full states as we recognize them. It's crucial at the same time for in, 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 in war theaters. Um, taxation is a crucial element in terms of how either it's a rebel group or a secessionist group or, or even a state raising enough money to actually carry out conflict. Um, at the same time, it's crucial to a state's development. And I think that these two things are so crucially interlinked um, that examining it in the context of rebel group taxation is a really great place to start if you're interested in conflict development um, and where these two things sort of meet. Yeah, no, I think uh, how rebel groups raise their money and spend their money is a hugely interesting angle. And I see some parallels there with the research that is done by your dissertation supervisor, Dr. Ahmed. Yeah, um, so it's been really great working with um, Aisha, Dr. Ahmed, um, because she does similar stuff in the sense that she does uh, revenue raising and she's very much linked into, um, I call her work the sexy part of the work that I'm doing. So. <laughs> more on the conflict side, more on the nitty-gritty of, of what these rebel groups are doing on the ground. And I was fascinated with her work because she's really zoned in on the business mentality uh, that these rebel groups have in terms of raising enough money to survive. Um, on the other hand, I'm also working with Dr. Wilson Pritchard, who, I'm sorry if he hears this, but the nitty-gritty of the tax stuff, which that's crucially important too, because there's a lot of definitions and really uh, particular elements from the taxation literature that sometimes, and, and this is where my research comes in, is missed in the rebel group taxation, you know, that I work with more closely with Aisha. Um, so the intersection of these two, these two sides, the, the conflict in the Civil War with um, the nitty-gritty of tax is sort of where, where I've landed. And the University of Toronto has been perfect because specifically of those two people being here. So it's, it was a, it's a very happy marriage of, of supervisors for me. I never thought I'd hear you say the nitty-gritty of tax. <laughs> Here we are. When you first started your journey as a graduate student in international relations, did you think that taxation would be part of your dissertation title? Oh my gosh, not at all. Um, my undergrad thesis was actually um, on gender and security. And at that time, I was looking at um, the prevalence and, and uh, of, of women's suicide bombers and the narratives actually um, of, of women ter terrorists and um, what that might mean for a feminist IR scholarship. At NIPSIA, I took a course with Gaëlle Pivapichet, uh, Development and Conflict, and she's also very interested in sort of the orders that are produced by rebel groups with this sort of revenue-raising um, narrative underpinning, underpinning that story as well. So with her course, that's kind of where I got into the taxation side of things. So I, I'm thankful for, to Gael for, for um, introducing me to what I'm now pursuing as a passion project, but my PhD. And you got to know Gael a little bit more this year on the personal front, co-organizing with Canada. I just want to acknowledge your role um, helping with the organization of, of this conference because I know it's a ton of work. And since you're at the University of Toronto and involved with the Toronto chapter of WISE2, I know you've been central to pulling it all together. So thank you. Of course. Happy to help. And then I'll ask you a question that I hated being asked as a <laughs> PhD student, but I'll do so. So more for, for a touch of humor than anything else. But when do you anticipate being done with your dissertation? <laughs> yeah, so like, I, like, like I've said before, this is something... I ask myself every day with no answers, but um, I mean, I just wrapped up the first year, so there's still a long way to go. Mm -hmm. um, I have more coursework to complete. Um, I anticipate doing fieldwork for this research, and then of course writing. So I'm looking probably another four years, ideally. That would cap me off at five years. Mm -hmm. What do you anticipate doing for your fieldwork? Yeah, so when I mentioned the nitty-gritty of tax, uh, one thing in particular that I'm interested in is what we call tax morale and that is the intrinsic willingness to pay tax. Um, so of course we have our understandings of, of why we pay tax, because we get something in return. We get school services. Um, in the case of civil war, we get protection. And then also representation. You pay your taxes, you expect the tax collector to be responsive to what, 
what you're about, your demands, what you're asking for. Tax morale, on the other hand, are these sort of softer elements. So not following the monetary incentives or the material incentives, but your trust in the system. Do you believe that the system is equitable? Is it fair? Do you believe in a moral duty to pay your taxes? So this will certainly require field work. Right now, the cases that are interesting to me would be FARC in, in Colombia, um, Al-Shabaab in Somalia, and um, also the Tigray People's Liberation Front in Ethiopia. Those are impossible um, choices. Case selection is ongoing. Ideally, I would have at least two cases, so um, picking between those right now. Um, it would entail you know, going there and sort of asking questions about do you believe that the tax system is fair? How do you feel about paying your taxes? Mm -hmm. These kinds of questions. And then comparing across rebel groups and to try and see what was it about these rebel groups in terms of their the way that they taxed and the way that they governed that may or may not have contributed to these sort of perceptions on whether people want to pay their taxes or not to these rebel groups. So that's, that's a bit on the field work. That's fascinating. Well, it's definitely stuff I look forward to reading down the road. And once this is all done and wrapped up, project yourself five years from now, what do you think that you'd like to do? I, so I think the dream for anyone pursuing a PhD would be that tenure track academic position. I went into this with an open mind to realizing the job market is not the best at the moment, hopes that maybe it'll change in four years. Um, but I'm also open to working for government, Global Affairs Canada. I've done some really interesting work with the World Bank. I'm, I'm, I like the work that they're doing and I, I have some friends who have graduated the PhD and they're doing work there that is interesting and meaningful. So working for the World Bank, for example, or an organization similar would also be would also be great. Good, and we can revisit this answer in four <laughs> or five years to see what comes of it. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and to be on Battle Rhythm. Of course. Bacos, who wrote the book, The Targeter, My Life in the CIA, Hunting Terrorists and Challenging the White House. Welcome to the Battle Rhythm podcast. Thank you for having me. We've been meaning to have you on ever since I got a hands on your book. It's a, an excellent read. It really provides a good perspective, not just of how things were operating in, in Iraq, but also the life of a, a woman working at the CIA. Uh, and so I recommend it to all readers. And so I guess the first thing I want to start off with is when you signed up to join the CIA, what was the biggest surprise? The biggest surprise it was probably the fact that it's almost like a small city. I mean, there's a, a job for absolutely everything between people who make disguises and alias documents to expert chefs to, you know, of course, all the technical stuff. I mean, it was just kind of shocking to me just the breadth of experience and, and skill sets that the place has. Why are there expert chefs at the CIA? Can't tell you. <laughs> oh, this is gonna be an interesting podcast but that's the average answer <laughs> i'm kidding they're just just because i mean there's like the executive dining room there's i mean it's just the whole you know conglomeration okay uh, i was just curious about that all right so i guess the second question is i've heard some uh stories about getting your book published was it harder serving in iraq or getting your book passed the censors <laughs> it was a different kind of hard right so there were a lot of obstacles in the in the sense that the bureaucracy and the process around how they review publications is incredibly broken within the intel community. Um, not just the CIA's. CIA's is well-oiled machine in comparison to most other organizations. It's just that there is just not a great reciprocal agreement set up between all these other agencies when they get to review each other's work. There's no deadlines when they have to return stuff. There's, and they don't have to tell you, the author, what the problem is. They just black it out and say, you can't say that. But they don't say why, what you can change it to. There's just a lot of it that's just very broken. And if I remember correctly, there was stuff that Stan McChrystal wrote in his book that got published that you couldn't say in yours. Yeah, there was a lot of pushback uh, from the DOD initially on some of that stuff. And I did get, after I filed a lawsuit with Mark Zaid's help, I ended up sitting down with each individual agency and we worked through what I could and could not say and why. But it was challenging. Did you find that 
the things that were taken out, the redactions, hurt your ability to get your story across? Or is there it's, basically that your story is is pretty well covered and there's not missing holes based on whatever that you could couldn't say? I think the story the story itself is totally intact, but what is missing probably for like the people who are wonky and follow terrorism and certainly uh, politics inside of Iraq and things like that, I think there's probably things that they would definitely like to know and things that I could not say. <laughs> but that's going to be the case with basically anybody who's dealt with being part of a security agreement where you've signed a document that says you won't share secrets. Yeah, I signed one of those too, but I, I, I didn't have quite the same readout instructions and people oversee me for my book on NATO and Afghanistan, partly because I wasn't researching that book while I was there. And so I, I did rely on some open source stuff to talk about things that I learned uh, while I was in the Pentagon long, long ago. Let me ask you this. The key theme of your book is that you had a struggle about, you were there in 2003, 2004, 2005. And so the pressure in the CIA or from outside, from outside the CIA was to get intelligence to justify the war. And that got in the way of hunting insurgents. Can you explain the trade-off between the two efforts? Well, yeah, I was, I was part of the initial analytic unit that was charged with evaluating whether or not Iraq had anything to do with 9-11 and Al-Qaeda. So that was all in the run-up to the war for like the 18 months prior. That initial line of questioning, which formed our team, continued on after the invasion. And instead of looking forward and, and trying to figure out from that, there were just certain elements within the Bush administration that was not writ large. I, I, not everybody was backwards focused, but there were certain elements within Pentagon and the vice president's office that really wanted to still justify the reason we invaded. And so there was a lot of focus still from those people on how to figure out how to look backwards and try to find, still find some evidence for a connection, which we told them there wasn't one in the, prior to the, the invasion, and there continued to not be one after. There was something uh, it, that you identified in the course of, of your time in, a, in Iraq that I hadn't heard about. I spent a lot of time ruining the fact that we disbanded the army and what that did to inflame the insurgency, but I hadn't heard about how disbanding the police had an impact. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, essentially taking all of your viable institutions that you rely upon, with whether state or federal government, if you think of just removing those institutions, that's what happened. And so it was complete chaos. Just think of not having a local police unit and what, how people would react. People go crazy because they're trying to just survive and sustain themselves. And they're looking for food, electricity, <laughs> making sure they have water. Not only is there, are there people that are exploiting that, but there's people who are just trying to make their way during a war. Well, I was really struck by something that hadn't been widely reported, at least I don't remember in the West, which was that this led to an escalation in sexual violence. I mean, globally, you always have the element of people who take advantage of these kind of chaotic situations when there's just like a power vacuum, right? So whether it's a terrorist organization or hate organization or just criminal elements, it happened. And that's why we need police, a local police force, why we need federal officers that can watch this writ large. I mean, it is mind boggling to me that anybody thought um, that was a good idea. Yeah, and I imagine it's still, I, mean, I know that the disbanding the military has had a legacy and presents challenges to this day. I, I, I would guess that that time frame where they had such an outburst of, of violence on all levels might still have some implications for how the Iraqis govern today, that there's still distrust of government, that they, that this might be one, one other explanation or one other source of problems that Iraq is still dealing with. Yeah, this, it's so unfortunate, but they are still dealing with all of this. This, this, this is still a rebuild. And I think it's kind of, it, it shows just how fragile, I think, governments and people are. You take away some of these, you know, really basic institutions. It's kind of scary what can mm -hmm. happen. Well, speaking of institutions, uh, moving to the American side of things, I love the Harry Potter references. You referred to Peter Pettigrew in one spot and evil Hagrid in another spot. Did you see any other Harry Potter parallels in your uh, journey in your career and in, in Iraq? Ultimately, I needed to have aliases and I needed them to be descriptive. So I hmm. figured that was probably the easiest way to go about it because there seemed to be a character to fit everybody in my narrative. So it worked out pretty well. Does that make you Hermione? <laughs> I wish. 
Oh, I, I, I think that if people read the book, they'll, they'll see a bit of Hermione flowing through it, which gets to one of the great things about your book, which is that it's not just um, a story about Iraq, and it's not just a story about the CIA, but it's a story about a woman's journey through both places. And so I guess what I'm interested in is, is how do you feel that sexism has hurt the agency and hurt the mission? And are they, is the agency getting better at this stuff? Well, I mean, the agency, just like all the other institutions in all of America, started out, the roots of everything are sexist, right? Because women were not considered to be equals and hold positions for, feels like, very recently. But (laughs) the CIA was no exception to that. It's a reflection of American society. And I think it is getting better. I mean, if you look at just the leadership now, there's women at the helm of not only the director of the agency, Gina Haspel, but also the director of operations, which was has never happened before. And the analyst side is is less so. That's less impactful as far as there's a lot of more gender equality because it's ultimately based on how well can you write and analyze and brief. And if you can't do that, it just doesn't matter who you are. On the on the op side, there's a lot more bravado. There's a lot more of the old school sort of patriarchal mindset that seems to kind of stick around a lot longer than it needs to. But it's changing for sure. I guess the, the, the challenge here is that the CIA, of course, is smothered in secret sauce, which makes it harder for problems of sexism to be revealed, for them to be discussed in the public. And, and usually it's a public outcry that leads to Congress putting pressure on an agency or an organization to do more about changing the culture, changing the organization. And so I, I just am curious as to whether there's a sense that the CIA is moving slower because they haven't had as much public pressure on these issues, or are they moving faster because they have, it's clear that sexism hurts the operations in a way that may not be quite as obvious for other parts of government. I think that's, that's true. I'm not sure there's any agency that's able to really shed a, a public light on some of these issues. Like, I'm trying to think if there's any agency that's been really been reformed based on that. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, the secrecy element makes it much more difficult because even internally, it's hard to get traction because a huge part of the organization won't know or hear anything about what has happened or transpired. So yeah, it, it can be problematic. And I, and these, I mean, one of the challenges for the CIA has been that there is an oversight by the House and Senate uh, Select Intelligence Committees, but the past, I don't know, at least the past several years, if not the longer than that, those oversight committees seem to be very politicized. I mean, did you get a sense that Devin Nunes had any clues going on in the building and, and was doing, asking the right questions? Or was this sort of, you know, a little bit after your time and something you didn't really get a, get a glimpse of? Well, Devin Nunez's comments in open source are enough to tell me. <laughs> he doesn't have a grasp on issues at hand. He's an ideologue. He's following a politicized ideology that he's interested in. And it's completely self-serving. So he is the wrong person to be overseeing anything as far as intelligence goes, because it's supposed to be objective material. If you really want to serve the United States, you need to remain objective. Otherwise, we're going to end up in a huge quagmire and a total mess. I'm not, I mean, obviously, you know all of this, as as does your audience, but it just, it does drive me crazy. I do think that the Intel organizations really need more of a Federal Reserve Board type of structure, remove even some of the presidential political appointee authority over some of it, because as we can see with this administration, it's very easy to end up politicizing and essentially neutering some of these intel organizations. So I guess you're not a big fan of the potential next director of national intelligence, is it Ratliff? Well, somebody who engages in conspiracy theories doesn't seem to be qualified to lead intel organizations. The FBI just put out a report that talked about how dangerous some of these conspiracy theories are and how it can lead to domestic violence. If <laughs> he's somebody who is actually a proponent of some of these theories. He has no business serving at all anywhere in the government. Very fair. I, I think you're on target there. I, the Pizzagate is is obviously the latest uh, conspiracy theory that that we can directly attribute violence to. Uh, I do worry about QAnon, which I guess a lot of people in the mainstream aren't really familiar about this notion that there's this widespread group of people who believe that the deep state of the United States is trying to protect, either protect or pursue pedophiles, I, f- I forget which, or both, 
And this must be really disturbing to you as an intelligence professional to see so much stuff out there. And it's not just under rocks these days, but it's you actually have politicians sort of repeating these these conspiracy theories. It's incredibly disconcerting. And I cannot figure out what happened. I mean, it's like, is there widespread mercury poisoning in the United States? What, <laughs> how do people buy into this stuff? What I can't understand is, is reality so difficult for them to grasp that just making up stuff is a lot easier for them to then digest information and not have to think about reality? I just don't understand. Well, I, I, I try to figure that out, but I'm going to be hanging out at our Area 51 uh, next month when we all make a rush on the, on the, <laughs> on the base. Some of this stuff isn't that new, but it does seem to be the case that the internet is bringing people together, uh, both in good ways and in bad. And it seems to allow the conspiracy theory types to, to feed off of each other. Of course, we have an American uh, Democratic candidate for presidency who's been spouting off conspiracy theories. So it's not just out in the, in the woodwork. It's out there uh, on t- TV debates these days with uh, Williamson. Uh, that's my own rant. Sorry. I agree. So one of the things you point out in your book, and I think it's something people have talked about, is that in, in situations like Iraq, when you pick up people who are suspected of engaging in the insurgency, you have to put them someplace. But these prisons become, as I think you put it, radicalization academies. And I'm curious as to if you have any suggestions on how we should deal with this problem, because we may not be going back to Iraq anytime too soon, and we're trying to get out of Afghanistan. But this is a recurring problem, and obviously we have it in our own prisons because we have white supremacists learning how to be better white supremacists in our, in our prisons. So any, any ideas about how to deal with this? Well, and this is where um, right now it's super popular to, especially from a cons- what people say subscribe to a conservative point of view, which I'm not, that's such a blanket statement, but I, we need to have more hands-on types of activities within the prison system so that we have an education system. We have things that actually will set them up to focus on having a life when they get out and so that they're not repeat offenders and not allowing that radicalization to take hold. Because if all you're offering to them is nothing, that guess what their other alternative is? Call it what you will, socialism, <laughs> welfare. <laughs> I don't care. If you'd prefer that people not act like that, well, that's your option. Speaking of legacies of, of these wars, in the book, you discuss experiencing PTSD. Uh, how did you grapple with that? And what strategies did, did you develop or did you learn that, that made it better for you? First of all, professional help is useful. I, have it, I had a great therapist that worked with me um, initially, you know, a few times a week. So I, I just really dislike the stigma around mental health issues in this mm-hmm. country that it still persists. Um, and people like Marianne Williamson, who have decided that they're somehow qualified to talk about whether or not people need antidepressants or anything else, it's no business talking about that because she, she's not qualified. She sounds like a Scientologist, frankly. There's a huge need. When you look at the, the span of a lifetime, everybody is going to go through some kind of you know, ups and downs. And to have that initial help and really push for that initially and focus on, on the therapy, I think is needed, especially for PTSD. If you know of someone suffering from, from PTSD or you're suspected, just figure out how to harness some kind of resources around them so that they can start seeing it for themselves. Because it wasn't until somebody actually who was familiar with PTSD said to me, this is what you're suffering from, mm-hmm. that I even had an inclination what was happening. Mm-hmm. And, and you're doing okay these days, or is it still something that is, is problematic? It's like if you get the right help, Mm-hmm. Now, and you go through all the <laughs> the un- not so fun therapy to get to the other side of this. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's I, you know, obviously, I'm a different person than I was when I started the whole process, but I was going to be anyway, right? After at the agency going through 9/11 and the Iraq War and all of that kind of stuff, it's, it's going to change any person. Yeah, there's a resiliency of coming out the other side of it for sure. Well, I'm I'm really glad that that you've been able to get through and that you can have, can write about it because I think that it's an important part of your book uh, that you tell your story that that what happened to you I think that, that is one way for people to overcome the stigma is to read books like yours that show that a person can go go through this and get to the other side and and, and continue on with their lives um, speaking of which what are you doing these days besides writing amazing books well I have been um, working the last year actually as a um, 
contractor for a social media company, just helping them evaluate um, dangerous organizations and how to keep them off their platform and detection. And it's actually been a really interesting challenge, not unlike what I've done before, but more obviously technical. And actually, you know, it's nice to be back in, in doing some kind of analysis that I'm very familiar with. <laughs> Well, it sounds like there's a huge need for that kind of analysis because of uh, what's been what happened in 2016, what we see today. I mean, what's nice is that we have a better awareness that during the debates and afterwards, we see suddenly all this activity where there's support for Tulsi Gabbard at the expense of Kamala Harris. And there's a little better awareness that a lot of this is emanating out of Russia. If you could actually grab one of the CEOs of, of one of the major social media companies and, and get them to, to change what they're doing, what would what would you suggest? Oh, that's a really good question. I think ultimately there needs to be a unified framework for all the social media companies. They need to prepare as if regulation is right around the corner. And I think that would help tremendously because, you know, whether it's EU or the United States that ends up applying some kind of regulation on the social media companies, I think it's a when and not an if. And the sooner they start to clean that up, I think the better off we all are. I don't know if, if you're deep in the technology of all this, but the one thing I, I, I would think to suggest is if they could just, for instance, Twitter, I'm not going to say, you know, whatever company, but Twitter in particular, there's the, these bots out there. And I don't know if there's a useful purpose for these bots, that there's a reason for them to exist other than to do pernicious things. But I, I'd like to suggest that that Twitter just nuke all the bots out there entirely. So that way there's just not so much of these uh, echo chambers that make things worse. I wholeheartedly agree. Between the bots and the anonymous accounts, which actually can be really difficult because it's hard it's hard to do some of that authentic detection that it's always an original person. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, over time you can figure it out. But yeah, the bots, those are an obvious one and, and one that I think they should be tackling now. When they formed the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, it wasn't given much budgetary authority. And so those people who tend to study bureaucracies tend to not to see it as being that relevant of a position compared to being the director of the CIA, who still controls the budget and the personnel of the CIA. What's your take on the, the director of national intelligence? And we should be that worried that Trump is going to put in an uber hack into that position as opposed to, let's say, Gina Haspel, who's a, a veteran of the, of the CIA. So her being director of the CIA is not that problematic from the standpoint of experience and professionalism. So the, the DNI has amassed um, power and authority over time since the since the job was created. So it used to be that it didn't have direct employees, and now it does. The analysts that work directly for NCTC work for the DNI, the National Counterterrorism Center. Mm-hmm. So they have more personnel, more budget, and the DNI definitely has a broader impact because they they've shifted how the intelligence is delivered to um, cabinet officials in the White House, and the DNI owns that process now. So the CIA is still the primary author, but there's other contributors, and that's all collected by the DNI. The briefers typically come still from CIA, but at the end of the day, it's the DNI's interface. So it does matter now much more than it used to. Well, that's depressing. I was looking for, I was grasping at straws, and you've denied them. I'm terribly, uh, I'm well, that's to squash your dreams. Well, I prefer that not to live in an ignorant world. I, I know that ignorance is bliss for, for Trump, but it isn't for the rest of us. So I really appreciate your insight on that. Sure, for what it's worth. Well, I want to thank you for taking time to talking to the audience of Battle Rhythm and to, to myself. I recommend everybody read this book. I don't read that many books these days that are outside my requirements for my daily job, but this is a, an, a, an impressive account, a moving account, and sometimes a very funny account of a pivotal time, not just in American foreign policy, defense, national security history, but in our times, because we're living with the legacies of of this stuff these days. Uh, ISIS grew out of the dynamics that uh, Nada talks about in her book. And so it's it's worth reading. And uh, I think you should keep on going on, on uh, book tours to sell this thing, because I, I think you've made a real contribution to our conversations. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for having me and for the kind words on the book. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks again for speaking to us at uh, Battle Rhythm. On this Steve's Peeve, I want to talk about the new book tour and all that comes with it with Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis. 
Former Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis is doing the talk show circuit to flog his book that is a memoir of his life as a Marine. There is so much here that is greatly troubling and annoying. I'll just try to cover a few points. First, the obvious one. He never stopped being a Marine, despite the claims that it was okay for him to be Secretary of Defense because he had retired. He never stopped thinking, acting, talking, behaving like a Marine, which is a problem because he served as Secretary of Defense. There's a reason why Congress originally had a 10-year requirement revised to seven for former military officers serving in this post. It is not good to have someone with a military mindset or ties to a particular branch of the military. He did not see the job from a civilian point of view. He only was briefly a civilian. And what did he have to show for that? Trying to sell the government and others in a sham company. Theranos. See Vox for a good discussion of his role in that mess. So Congress, because they were desperate to have an adult in the room, waived uh, the seven-year requirement, and this is what we got for it. One consequence of his military mindset is that he facilitated the most opaque Pentagon in recent history. Press conferences were rare, information was scarce, and it was hard for Americans to understand what was going on in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and elsewhere, without the top civilian and his staff speaking about these major military engagements. Another problem was that him being a Marine is that he served as a SECDEF at the time where the chairman of the Joint Staff was also a Marine. So I ended up having the Joint Staff dominated by Marines, making most of the military strategy and policy, which is not its job. Who were the civilians controlling the military when Mattis was SECDEF? President Trump, but not the SECDEF, and not the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Again, Mattis was always seen as the adult in the room restraining Trump, but this was mostly wishful thinking. Trump was and is going to do what he's going to do most of the time, whatever he wants, although Mattis and others may have gamed him into reinforcing Afghanistan and not leaving Syria, despite his campaign promises. On the other hand, Trump risked war with North Korea when Mattis was around, and then he started to sell out South Korea while Mattis was around. So again, it's really hard to tell what Mattis' impact was without Mattis telling us this, and of course he isn't. Sure, I get it. The book Mattis is promoting is the one that he wrote before he became Secretary of Defense, but could not sell it until he was done being Secretary of Defense. But then there is this book tour where he is, of course, getting questions about his time as Trump's Secretary of Defense. This is where he wants to be treated as retired General Mattis rather than fired or resigned Secretary of Defense. He wants to have it both ways, the platform to sell the book as a former SECDEF, but none of the responsibility of having served in that position, refusing to answer questions about his time as SECDEF. So, folks are referring to him as General Mattis, but I refuse. For me, he will always wear his last job most prominently as if it were a coat covering up his military uniform, which he had never taken off. He will always be former SECDEF Mattis with all the stains and tears that come with that coat. And no, I'm not going to buy this book. If he writes another one on, on the mistakes he made, or perhaps on the wars he prevented while being SECDEF, well, sure, I'll read that one. But I am not holding my breath. Are you? Thank you. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.